This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Laden Sami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. A good morning and welcome to America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we are truly honored to be joined by a principal leader, a quintessential diplomat, and one of Israel's most brilliant thinkers, Jeremy Isakarov. Jeremy Isakarov is the former ambassador of Israel to Germany and was previously the vice director general of the foreign ministry in Jerusalem. His diplomatic services on behalf of the government of Israel also brought him to serve as one of Israel's top diplomats in New York City at the United Nations and in Washington, D.C. at the Jewish State's Embassy in America. And without any further delay, we extend a warm welcome to Ambassador Jeremy Isakarov. Good morning, Jeremy, and it's great to have you back on America's Roundtable. Good morning, Ambassador Isakarov. Thank you. Great to see you, John and Natasha. Great friends of Israel. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you indeed, sir. Uh, Ambassador Isakarov, I recall our earlier conversations with you on the concerns about Iran mm-hmm. uh, pursuing a nuclear weapons program. At the inaugural International Leaders Summit in 2015, uh, Steve Lindy, then editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, moderated a conversation with you on U.S.-Israel relations, and you expressed concerns about Iran's quest for region hegemony. You also briefed a U.S. congressional delegation in 2016, joined by members of the European Parliament. And upon your return from Germany, you have continued to raise concerns about the potential for a turn to revive JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. In a piece that you authored for the Times of Israel in August 2022, titled Any Power the JCPOA Had to Curb Iranian Nukes is Long Gone. And articulating a broader strategic vision, you stated, and I quote, Israel must continue in its efforts to engage the U.S. and the EU3 and outline the dangers and shortcomings inherent in a return to the JCPOA. Coordination with America should remain a high priority, but Israel's determination to define and defend its own national security must remain clear. While it is not up to Israel if this deal will be reached or not, it is also crucial to emphasize the need to back up any new deal with Iran by a robust American determination to deter Iran from approaching or crossing the nuclear threshold. There are tools in diplomacy and national security that can be effective and are not dependent on Iranian consent." Unquote. Ambassador Isakarov, from your vantage point, what is the status of U.S.-Iran deal and how concerned should American and European leaders and engaged citizens be about Iran's goal to be a nuclear-armed nation-state in the Middle East? As Americans are wary about foreign entanglements, how concerned should they be about Iran 
one day having nuclear warheads. Well, thank you, Natasha. That was, uh, uh, you, you covered quite a lot of ground there. The bottom line is that my concern with respect to Iran and its uh, not only nuclear ambitions, but its other activities in the areas of missile procurement, uh, subversive regional activities in the Middle East, and something that I think uh, Europe uh, will understand very clearly today, the supply and cooperation with Russia, supplying Russia with drones that have been used to kill Ukrainian civilians. Uh, not used in a military sense, but used as a kind of like terror weapon against civilians. So I think, you know, Iran is saying not only on the nuclear side are we on the wrong side of history, but on the, across the spectrum, we're on the wrong side of history in a regional sense and also in an international sense. Now, I uh, I think uh, looking specifically at the nuclear sphere, Iran has never been as advanced in the nuclear uh, field as it has been now. Since the JCPOA was cancelled in 2018, and sadly, there was no uh, plan B or backup uh, plan to kick in. The uh, All the restraints on Iran in terms of enrichment have gone up. They used to be allowed under JCPOA to enrich until uh, up to 3.67 level of enrichment of uranium. Now they're enriching to 20%, 60%. And there have even been reports of 84%, and that is incredibly close to weapons-grade uranium. Uh, and also, without full, effective, and intrusive inspections of the IEA in the uranium activities, you'll never fully be satisfied that they're not engaging in uh, weaponization activities. It's not just enriching the uranium, but it's also... Uh, um, having uh, a weaponization process that creates the device, and then you need also uh, plans and programs to deliver the device. So I think we're in a very, uh, I, I'm, I'm very concerned, even more concerned than I was before, regarding the extent to which Iran has uh, forwarded its program. Um, and that's why I say, and I've always felt this, America and Israel have to work together on this key issue to our national securities. It's not something that can be brushed under the carpet because otherwise it will come back to really to bite us and also our regional neighbors. I, I must emphasize the Iranian nuclear threat is not only against uh, Israel, it's not only against a key American interest, but it's against you know the regional uh, states in the area, the Arab neighbors that we have, that in my private conversations with them, I feel no less threatened than we are to this. Mm. And I think actually the uh, tendency of Iran to threaten these countries, to interfere in their, you can see it in Iraq, you can see it in Syria, you can see it in Lebanon, and even further afield, you've seen it in uh, before in Morocco. You know, Iran's willingness to interfere and engage in subversive activities in these areas is, is quite uh, substantial and constant. So the, the, those are the reasons that we need to put together the American minds, the European, the EU three minds, Germany, uh, France and Great Britain and Israel and say, what can we do to stop these activities that again, are not contingent on whether Iran agrees to it or not. Mm -hmm. And 
that's a broad statement that covers quite a spectrum of uh, effective tools that I believe can be uh, pursued. Mm -hmm. And as you've mentioned, rightfully so, about Iran uh, certainly engaging in all these different sovereign states and causing havoc. And it also has funded terrorist networks within Israel uh, that continue to uh, adversely impact Israeli citizens. Mm -hmm. uh, what can the United States do on that side of issuing not just only warnings, but perhaps you know, further sanctions in this regard? Because the funding of terrorism is a great concern. Terrorism financing. Without financing, these terrorist groups would not be able to access weapons or have the infrastructure uh, to bring upon uh, great harm against citizens, both Jews and Arabs within uh, the sovereign state of Israel. Well, as you said rightly so, Joel, the, the Iranians work through proxies. They have proxies, particularly in Lebanon with Hezbollah, particularly in uh, Gaza, I would say the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is many uh, colleagues of mine in diplomatic circles, not just Israeli ones, would say that's just basically an arm of Iranian intelligence. They work to uh, maybe to a lesser, tighter extent with Hamas, but they work with Hamas. In Syria as well, whether through Hezbollah or, or others as well. And if you're talking, first of all, financing, stopping financing of terrorism, I've worked on that and we work very closely uh, in the past and I'm sure it continues today uh, very closely with our American colleagues who are very much focused on this and it is a very uh, important tool in curtailing these type of the terrorist activities. It becomes uh, perhaps more complicated when you're dealing with uh, actors that know how to dodge the formal system. Mm. Sometimes, you know, when things go through bank transfers and, and, and through accounts, that's one thing. But when cash goes in suitcases uh, and, you know, can be given physically or, the, you know, through the Hawala system where, you know, there are many different uh, ways and also through cryptocurrencies, you know, the whole situation becomes a lot more complicated. But I think, you know, we, you know, our intelligence agencies and American intelligence agencies, as well as the Europeans, are very much focused on this issue. And we've seen a very high degree of cooperation, which I presume will, will be continuing. On the ground, however, I would say that, you know, we have a clear and present threat to Israel, primarily from the missiles that have been supplied by Iran to Hezbollah, and also the very uh, uh, extended cooperation between Iran and the Islamic Jihad in Gaza. But on that, we need to maintain a very high level of deterrence. Mm. No one should have any mistake. You know, in Israel now, there's demonstrations and there's a very broad public debate. But the minute we see any clear and serious, substantial threat to our security, I have absolute and i believe me when i say it, i have absolutely no doubt that our military uh, establishment which is following these things day by day minute by minute we will react in a very decisive way so our deterrence on the ground is very crucially important um, obviously the cooperation with america when we have a very uh, effective iron dome uh, system which is uh, very instrumental, instrumentally effective because of our cooperation with America. You know, in the last rounds, we we had something of a destroying rate of over 90% of these incoming missiles to Israel. 
which was a massive contribution to us protecting our civilian population and also a massive contribution in preventing an escalation because if we would have had severe civilian casualties, our response in Gaza would have been even more devastating. And we managed that with a very kind of like surgical attack. You know, the the, the Islamic Jihad or the Hamas, they attack civilians. This is our weak point. Mm. We attack, mm. you know, military fortifications. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for militants, for factories uh, that create these missiles, uh, mortars, etc., etc. So it's a it's a very asymmetrical situation, but we're very much focused on it, and it's a very important part of the whole equation. Ambassador Zakharov, according to U.S. officials, uh, there is a recognition in Washington, Riyadh, and Jerusalem that this is a time to broker a deal to normalize Saudi Arabia's ties with Israel. Uh, this would be a continuation of successful Abraham Accords. Uh, following United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Morocco, Sudan, which normalized their relations with Israel uh, during the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, the positions for the upcoming negotiations with Saudi Arabia include certain concessions and requests, and among them are uh, Saudis are requesting U.S. U.S. help to develop a civilian nuclear program and to provide U.S. security guarantees. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saudis are also seeking concessions from Israel that would help promote the creation of a Palestinian state. Mm-hmm. In return, U.S. is pressing Saudi Arabia to distance itself from China economically and militarily. Uh, there's apparently a risk that China may be building military bases in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, then also there's a, there's a request to limit the use of technologies developed by China's Huawei also to use dollars and not Chinese currency to price oil sales, mm-hmm. also to end the feud over oil prices that are driven by Saudi Arabia's repeated production cuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ambassador Zakhar, looking at all these uh, requests and concessions and the importance of normalizing relations with Saudi Arabia, what are your thoughts about these positions and what are Israel's demands or requests? Well, First of all, um, uh, let's try and break it down because you painted a very, very complicated picture of, let's say, American expectations of Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabian expectations of uh, America, our expectations of both. So I'll try and be modest and talk about, you know, from our, our, our point of view. You know, over the years, I've had many different uh, exchanges with uh, colleagues from the Gulf, including also in academic exchanges with, uh, um, I remember a very senior exchange with a very senior Saudi uh, official. We participated in a panel in, in Berlin. And in all of these conversations, when we talk about regional issues, you go from Iran and all of the different aspects, nuclear missiles and subversion, and then you go to talk about Iraq, even you talk about Syria, Lebanon, Hezbollah, Muslim Brotherhood. The one thing that I have been seeing uh, from my own experience since the early 90s with these uh, Gulf countries is that it's incredibly difficult to find something to disagree about. Uh, we, we we have so such an amazing overlap in terms of our regional interests. And I think that's one of the reasons why today, in general terms, when we talk, I mean, when we talk about the Arab-Israeli conflict, I'm not really sure anymore, you know, if that conflict has got any nuts and bolts, because it ultimately, there's if there are differences, and, you know, obviously, every conversation we have, 
touches on the Palestinian issue. And, and I'll be very frank with you, you know, Israel, both Israel and the Palestinians, you know, we're not going anywhere, they're not going anywhere, we need a political horizon. And this is something that I think, you know, even there have been times when we've been frustrated with the Palestinians, but some of our Gulf uh, countries have also been frustrated with with how they've conducted their political exactly why go to the un and go to the icc icj in in europe come to us directly talk to us directly it's all the time i've spoken to palestinians directly and respectfully i've come out with a conversation that has been beneficial i've learned something and it changes people's minds when you confront me in the hague I, this is not the path to peace. Right. Bottom line is, look, having a relationship with Saudi Arabia would be of immense importance to Israel. It would be a, a fine, let's say not a final, but let's say a very important point in the process of normalization between Israel and the Arab world on a formal level, even though I would say informally, this process has been happening for a lot longer. And clearly, in this context, you know, I, I actually would hope that there would be a very important Palestinian element that would provide, you know, a sense of hope that normalization between Israel and the Arab countries is not at the cost of the Palestinians, but is a bridge for the Palestinians. It's not an obstacle, but it's a bridge for the Palestinians to include them in this process. Because as you remember, when we signed the Abraham Accords, the Palestinian Authority was, and the Palestinians in general were, oh, you know, our, our, our position is being sacrificed by, by the Arab countries or by Israel for, for peace between them. And I thought then, and I think now, the Abraham Accords are a massive opportunity for the Palestinians right? and for all of us. Mm. Now, the other elements, there are a lot of impor important elements that you mentioned, the nuclear, civilian nuclear program. Obviously, you know, I approach these issues with, you know, very great deal of caution in our region. And, you know, it would very much depend on the nature of the agreement, how it is monitored, how it is maintained. Also, the let's say the sensitive elements of technology are maintained in American hands. And in terms of, let's say, broadening American ties with Saudi Arabia, as opposed to other others, I, I you know I would see that generally in our line of interests. Obviously, there's the issue of the qualitative military edge that Israel has in the area, and that's important also to maintain in terms of the, you know, advanced military cooperation between Israel and America, which is not just a one-way process. It's a cooperation that has given Israel the means to defend itself, but it's also given America a tremendous amount of let's say, expertise and information on operative cutting-edge military nuclear technologies and their use in warlike situations. So it's a very, very complex but very productive cooperation on both sides. Mm -hmm. Indeed. 
Natasha and I were amazed to find out about your leadership role in engaging with Arab leaders on the issue of peace, prosperity, and security way before it became vogue. There was a significant period after the historic Camp David Accords when Israel and Egypt normalized relations and signed a peace treaty on September 17, 1978, when Menachem Begin, Israel's prime minister and Egypt's president Anwar Sadat, and then Israel and Jordan later signing a peace treaty in 1994. Yet during this period, there were exchanges and discussions, relationships established with trust and done discreetly to further advance principled solutions for the region. Your own story should be shared in a book, Jeremy, and even perhaps a documentary film. <laughs> Jeremy, you were a pioneer working with like-minded leaders in the Arab world and bringing key issues to the forefront. And the Times of Israel reported right after the signing of the Abram Accords in September 2020, and I quote, in 1994, Isakov, then the number three at the Israeli embassy in Washington, was approached by an American consultant called Sandra Charles, who worked with Gulf countries and said the UAE wanted to know how Israel felt about Abu Dhabi seeking to buy F-16 fighter jets from the U.S. It further stated, after the event, still standing at the White House lawn, Isakarov took a selfie with Emirati ambassador to the U.S., Yusuf Alatoiba, and posted it on his Twitter account. On this day, after many years of friendship and discreet contacts, we can now be photographed together without masks, he added. <laughs> Al Otaiba has been instrumental in making the new UAE-Israel alliance possible. His unprecedented June Hebrew language op-ed in the Yeduath Aronoff is widely thought to have kicked off the process that culminated in Tuesday's peace treaty, unquote. Well, Natasha and I have appreciated the opportunity to work with you as well as Ambassador Yusuf Alatoba over the years and working in partnership on some of these issues, but your close relationship with the UAE leaders is significant. Ambassador Isakarov, could you share with us the background story, the journey of engaging with Gulf state leaders and specific leaders from the UAE that really began establishing diplomatic ties with nations that were once opposed to recognizing Israel as a sovereign state? And could you share with us that background story on the initial context uh, with the UAE? It, it uh, sounds to us more like a thriller episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was... Uh you know, there are not many uh, times in a diplomatic career that you have these kind of like incredibly seminal moments. And uh, when Sandy Charles came to me and said, talked about the UAE, I said, fine, let them come and approach us directly. You know, we're, you know, we're happy to to listen. Uh, it wasn't clear, obviously, such an issue of F-16s advanced was, you know, it's a complicated story. And then I was uh, privileged to meet, uh, I got a call from Sandy and she said, come to my office. And, and I met with Dr. Jamal Al-Swaidi, who uh, was the head of the Emirates Strategic Studies Center in uh, Abu Dhabi. But he was also uh, half time, as it were, uh, a very close advisor to Sheikh Mohammed, who would uh, in later days become the president. He was the crown prince and became the president, uh, present president of the UAE. And uh, we met and we talked 
I remember talking, every conversation with uh, Jamal was a few hours and it was, again, it was immersing ourselves into, you know, an overview of regional relations and, uh, yeah, and it was um, it was very eye opening. And Jamal himself was one of the most visionary, and is one of the most visionary leaders I I had the pleasure to meet, not only in the diplomatic world, but in, you know in general. It was it was a really uh, interesting time. We established a very good personal relationship. Uh, in the end, uh, I remember Rabin came to Washington and said to the Secretary of Defense after there'd been many discussions, more detailed discussions, that we will not oppose the deal in the on the Hill with the UAE. And that was the first kind of, as it were, confidence-building measure that established the presence in Abu Dhabi, an informal presence. And then um, in the early 2000s, we there was the, as you recall, the second intifada, and there was a lot of pressures, and the, the UAE were getting very nervous about you know, having an Israeli presence. And they basically said to uh, our representative, look, you're going to have to leave. And and in the end, Jamal was still the uh, main interlocutor. But he, but he said, but I'm willing that Jeremy should come out to, the, to Abu Dhabi. I was then the head of the Strategic Affairs Division in the Foreign Ministry. And then we'll talk and then before we make a final decision. I went out. It was also on the eve of the uh, second Iraq war. And we sat for about, I remember sitting for like seven hours again talking. There was myself, uh, Dr. Jamal, and um, our representative, Bruce Kashtan. And uh, we had a very long conversation. And not only did we decide not to close the office, we decided to have close, periodic consultations, strategic consultations between the two countries. After seven hours, he came back in the evening to the hotel and said, that is what we want to do. So in that sense, you know, mission was accomplished. And, mm-hmm. and you know, the, the conversation was very much focused on what America was going to do in Iraq. But it was also the emerging Iranian nuclear program at the time. As you can remember, in 2002, uh, they exposed two facilities in Natanz and other facilities uh, that the the Iranians have been procuring. So it also shifted also to nuclear concerns, missile concerns, etc. Again, it was like I used to go out with small delegations every few months. And every time we went out, we met with more senior people like the head of the Sheikh Haza, the head of the internal security services, I met then for the first time with the foreign minister to be Sheikh Abdullah and his home. Uh, it was for me, it was like kind of like a dream come true because my whole essence as an Israeli diplomat from when I started uh, was to try and broaden our regional relations with our, our neighbors and to reach, you know, greater acceptance of of Israel in the area. And this for me was like an amazing uh, experience and very exhilarating. Next, uh, I was in Washington and we received um, Ambassador Aloteba and myself, we received um, instructions after President Obama was elected to go and brief the Americans on the uh, nuclear issue and the threat of Iran. And we called up the Americans and they were what? The Israelis and the UAE want to come and meet us together? (laughs) Uh, And, you know, because we were fully, you know, it's one thing for Israelis to go and say something, the UAE to go, but to go together. And I just want to say we didn't coordinate what we were going to say, but it turned 
both both sides spoke and presented their position to the US. And it was like like it'd been incredibly word for word <laughs> and it, you know there were parts that were of concern to you parts to us and ambassador Lotebe is one of the most uh, experienced and eloquent uh, ambassadors i know i also knew yusuf from a long time before that and the culminating point really was the uh, was the signing ceremony it's so rare that an israeli diplomat can in a sense plant the seed of the tree <laughs> <laughs> from which you get the paper uh, on which to sign. And, you know, then I was standing with him and, you know, it was obviously in the times of COVID and we had the masks on. And so I said, we'll have a picture. And then I said, <laughs> wait, we, we can take off the masks. <laughs> so it, was, it was like one of those moments that you, you know, it meant so much in so many ways. You know, I was really privileged to have that that incredible experience right. and i was really happy to see that you know not only had the tree grown but the fruits had been <laughs> you know being you were able to eat and partake in some of the fruits it really shows the significance of what transpired over the years it wasn't something that happened overnight right and i think you best described it in in, in planting that seed and having you and ambassador alatoiba sharing that moment together mm -hmm. being on the white house lawn and seeing that come to fruition but it also reminds us all of principled leadership, but also courageous leadership in times when people perhaps were, you know, skeptical. Natasha and I were talking about it saying, what if, you know, Sandy had talked to some other individual and they would have said, you know, maybe this is not the right time under the circumstances. So history, as we read it through the pages of history, there are leaders that show up at the right time at the right place and do the right thing. And it all culminated <laughs> with what you and Ambassador Alatoiba and others did at that very moment that was significant for the region and significant for America as well. Yeah. When you said you took the masks off, <laughs> basically it's also metaphorical. You really took the mask off because of the COVID, but actually all these years, we did not know that there were relations between UAE and Israel. So the normalizing was just a natural thing. You took the masks off. Well, absolutely. And I, you have to see, I mean, we had constant contacts and we used to go there. We used to have these meetings and everything was done under complete secrecy. And it was fully obvious to me that any exposure of this, you know, I, I really learned a lot from this process because in these type of conversations, you have to protect the interlocutors from both sides. Uh, and you have to be so discreet and you have to be so careful in how we even brief our own systems about what is going on. And it was in a sense, you know, I look back at the time, I haven't got one picture of us in, in, in we didn't have <laughs> cell phones then. And so I have no pictures to actually prove any of this, but, uh, but it was, uh, and it was really difficult because you were doing some amazing things and you couldn't tell anyone, <laughs> uh, but it was, um, it was a very uh, important uh, moment and uh, these relate. And it was amazing to me, you know, relations with Arab, other Arab diplomats, paradoxically became so much closer and so much more intimate and real friendships 
even more than you have generally with other diplomatic contacts. And it was uh, these, you could see that these personal relationships could translate themselves into, you know, acts of, of both governments. Right. It was a great learning experience. And, you know, it, it really fulfilled many of my, uh, you know, basic ambitions of the justification of being in the Foreign Service. Hence, it also requires the opportunity to uh, consider a book or a film documentary as a template for future generations on how it is so vital, as you've mentioned, the discretion, the the trust that was established uh, to break through some of these uh, barriers and, and bring people together on a common cause. Oh, absolutely. And if you want, you, you want to put a film together and, you know, maybe George Clooney will pay, play me. Oh, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a plan. Absolutely. Uh, right. And uh, uh, Ambassador Isakarov, we're actually on the eve of uh, remembering the tragic terrorist attacks on American soil on that fateful day in September 2001. And Americans will honor those uh, who were killed on September 11 and comfort family members. It's an annual event that we all come together as a nation. Uh, But many Americans uh, may not be aware at the entrance to Jerusalem, Israel, there is a 9-11 Living Memorial Plaza located in the Arazim Valley. And it is the only 9-11 memorial outside of the United States and lists all the names of those who perished in the horrific attacks that day. Ambassador Isakarov, could you share with us why this memorial in Israel is significant for both countries? And what does it mean for our two nations as we face security threats, the ever-present and clear dangers of terrorism, and the importance of peace through strength? Absolutely, Joel. And it it really is a very solemn day uh, also in Israel, remembering that dreadful and horrific event um, I always remember working with uh, uh, Yitzhak Rabin, uh, the late Yitzhak Rabin in the early 90s. Uh, he, he was a frequent visitor to Washington. And I'd say one of the uh, really major uh, Israeli leaders who solidified and consolidated the relationship with the, the strategic relationship with the United States. And he always talked in terms of uh, uh, how Israel and America would always face shoulder to shoulder all the challenges that we that we have. And in that sense, uh, when 9-11 happened, it was not only a great American tragedy, but it was something that Israelis felt as if it was a, a, a terrorist attack also against them. Um, and I think that really did, you know, it's not often that you have international relations between two countries that assume a kind of like a personal, emotional, human contact in a very deep and genuine sense. You know, the attack uh, obviously couldn't have been divorced from the Middle East. It was done by by Middle East Arab terrorists, Al-Qaeda. It was a horrific day. My wife, uh, as you know, is American, and I have three American children, and I've served in America almost for 15 years. So my my... In my soul, there's a very uh, uh, strong American sense. I think, you know, America and Israel are going to go always through tough challenges. They don't always present easy choices. Usually, uh, you know, you can see that in places like Syria, you don't have a good choice 
less good and a worse choice. What you basically have is a bad choice, an even worse choice, and the absolute worst choice. And it's sometimes incredibly difficult mm -hmm. uh, for the public sometimes to see uh, that you have to make really tough decisions that are really incredibly difficult circumstances. But to my mind, there's no substitute for Israel and America continuing to nurture the strategic partnership that we have. Um, and even in times when I've seen in times when I was actually in Washington, when there can be uh, disagreements at the, the senior most level, the actually the, the, the working level, the professionals, the intelligence agencies, the diplomatic contacts, um, security uh, contacts become even stronger because they, the need is felt to continue and to uh, maintain that. So, so I think that is going to be uh, uh, something that will remain an absolute critical part of our uh, relationship with the U.S. Um, I think, you know, America will always be our, our staunchest and most uh, strongest ally. I was also privileged to be ambassador to Germany, and that also has become a very strong partner um, and a strong partner also to America. So, you know, in that sense, uh, I think continuing to work together for the governments to really uh, pull their resources, exchange intelligence, work on terrorist uh, funding, uh, and also take the tough steps when you see information of things that are impending, don't hesitate, disrupt them in any way possible. Mm. Uh, and I think that that is something that the cooperation can always uh, bring very much to the table. But we, you know, on a day like uh, on the eve of 9-11, I'd say, you know, Israel still remembers this. And you're very kind to recall the uh, memorial just outside of Jerusalem. It is very, very close to Jerusalem. And it's, I've participated a number of times in the ceremonies there. And it's always, uh, it's a very moving ceremony. And it's a very, very pertinent to our national sensitivities. And one of the things that we have really appreciated during our visits to Israel, Ambassador Isakarov, is the fact that the ties of Israelis, Americans is so strong. Those enduring ties live and uh, give life to so much that we do together as not just only countries that are partners on the military side, but on the economic side, through trade, through innovation. There is so much positive work that is being done that perhaps does not even cover the front pages of our newspapers, but day in and day out, there is significant work that brings our countries ever closer together. And we're truly honored to see, uh, to be a part of this process and to witness these incredible work being done with our Israeli partners, Americans working together and building these key and strategic ties for the long term. Absolutely. And it's also been a great pleasure working with you and i really appreciate your commitment to the strengthening of these ties and being able to work uh, with israeli and with american leaders to make more evident you know the strength you know somebody a great i often quote a very great french thinker andre malois said that man is not what he appears to be he is what it hides and you know, in many ways, the strength of the American relationship does appear to be strong, but it's even stronger depending on what it hides. And it hides an incredible friendship and an incredible amount of strategic cooperation. Mm. Yeah. 
Ambassador Isakarov, we thank you so much for your continued leadership, even though you're enjoying retirement, but also <laughs> keeping very busy in advancing these strategic ties between our peoples. We thank you for your insights and analysis that informs and educates our fellow Americans. And so for that, we are deeply grateful for Ambassador Jeremy Isakarov is a principal leader, quintessential diplomat, and one of Israel's most brilliant thinkers. And he is the former ambassador of Israel to Germany and was previously the Vice Director General of the Foreign Ministry in Jerusalem. Thank you, Jeremy, for joining us. We truly appreciate your friendship and your partnership. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adinsami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. 